This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Nearly every American above a certain age remembers precisely where they were on September 11th, 2001. What began as an ordinary day became the deadliest terrorist attack in world history and the deadliest attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor. Shocking and terrifying the global community, exposing us to unimaginable tragedy and evil, while also reminding us of the strength bravery, and power of the human spirit. Heroes quite literally emerged from the ashes, and the hours and decisions that followed defined not just a generation, but our modern era. 18 years ago, our nation stood together as we were recovering from the most significant terrorist attack in modern history. Today, on the Ian Weekly Show, we are talking to author Garrett Graff about his book, The Only Plane in the Sky. Now on to the interview. Garrett, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, man, last time that we had you on, we were talking about uh, about Raven Rock, and, and then now this time we're talking about the... Uh, your book about 9-11 and, and the last plane in the air. And uh, to tell me about that process because, I mean, it's it's a beautifully done book. It's the I'm listening to the audio book. Uh, it, it has a lot of emotion attached to it. Um, and, and for those of us that remember, you know, it was 18 years ago, believe it or not. Uh, so those of us that can remember this, um, it, it's it's pretty powerful. What was it like for you to, to go through this process of writing this book? Yeah. Um, so this book actually grew out of my last book, The Only Plane in the Sky, uh, grew out of the of Raven Rock, which was you know the story of the U.S. government's doomsday plans. And that, in in the process of researching that, I got very interested in uh, you know both nine eleven and President Bush's day um, because you know the as it turns out you know we spent all of the Cold War building up this elaborate series of doomsday plans and then the one and only time we've ever actually used them was on nine eleven mm-hmm. and on that day most of the plans didn't work right and so I became sort of fascinated through that in. Uh, uh, with President Bush's day and how he, at this time of tremendous national need, uh, ended up, you know, uh, effectively locked away in a metal tube seven miles above the earth, circling um, aboard Air Force One, cut off from much of the rest of the country. And I turned that into a piece that ran for the 15th anniversary of 9-11 on, in, in 2016 that was also called The Only Plane in the Sky that was an oral history of being with the president that day. 
and that published in Politico magazine, and the reaction to it was just incredible. It, um, it quickly became the most read story in Politico magazine's history. Hmm. And then the reader reaction to it was what really blew me away. Um, and there were sort of two two pieces of reader feedback that is particularly about to me. One was a veteran, a mother who wrote in, she had two children, seven and nine at the time, who she said she had printed out my article and set it aside for when they were old enough to read so that someday she could explain to them why mommy had left them and gone off to war. And then the other was another veteran who wrote in, um, younger, he was army and he had done three tours, two in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. And he talked about how he had never really understood the trauma that the nation experienced that day until he had seen the day through president Bush's eyes. Mm. And those two reactions really uh, sort of just left me rattled because I was realizing, you know, as time passes, we are beginning to hand off the world that has been shaped and created by 9-11 to a generation who has no emotional connection or understanding of what that day was actually like. And you know, this year now, the 18th anniversary ends up uh, being the moment where perhaps we actually begin to officially see 9-11 shift from memory to history. Mm. That, you know, this is the year when you begin to have college students arriving on campuses born after 9-11. You begin to have um, uh, American servicemen and women deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight in wars that are actually older than they are now. Right. And, uh, you know, in New York City, you have firefighters as of March of this year who are beginning the application process to join the fire service who were born after the attacks that saw the loss of 343 members of that department. And... And so my goal with this book was to not tell the, the facts of 9-11, not to tell the history of 9-11, because that's familiar to us and has been done very well by groups like the 9-11 Commission. But my goal was to instead try to recapture what 9-11 was actually like to live, what 9-11 was actually like to experience. And so the book is the story of 9-11 told only in the voices of those who experienced it. And, you know, just focusing on that one day, you know, not, not what comes before or what comes after. And so the book, you know, begins that morning and follows the day through, um, uh, you know, right through in chronological order tonight mm -hmm. um, in what are sort of very thinly sliced chronological chapters of the day unfolding sort of place by place, not just the Pentagon 
Shanksville and the Twin Towers, but aboard Air Force One in the White House bunker with Vice President Cheney, um, aboard air traffic or inside air traffic control, right. as well as, you know, what what school was like on 9-11 for school children that day. You know, a couple of things I think are really amazing. The number one, you start the, the book with your foreword and um, saying that, you know, when we talk about 9-11, um, we all want to tell our story where we were at that time. And, and we all have that story. But you said that with this book, you are opening our ears and our minds and our hearts to listen. And, mm-hmm. and that was right there. That statement to me was, was super powerful because I could, I could tell my story and you could tell your story, but to listen to the stories of others without wanting to chime in is, is, is really cathartic to, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I think that sort of part of that, and, it, and it's both, you know, our nature to, that people sort of really want to share their own story, but at the same time, like, I think this part of why we have that, you know, intense immediate reaction of trying to share that story is because the history of 9-11 that we tell as our sort of society's history is not the day that any of us actually lived, you know, that we tell this much neater and cleaner and simpler history of 9-11 when we try to explain it. You know, we talk about the towers being hit at the start at 8.46 and then the attacks being over 102 minutes later at 10.29 Eastern time with the collapse of the second tower. But, you know, the, the defining characteristics of that day are that none of us knew when the attacks began. We didn't know when the attacks were over and we didn't know what came next and that that's really the day that we remember and that it's sort of this messy and confusing and fear-filled and traumatic and chaotic day that was not neat or simple and that when we sort of boil it down to the way that we tell the history of 9-11, um, then what you end up sort of finding is that it writes out and we sort of forget, uh, you know, that the thing about 9-11 was that we all feared that we were next, you know, that in Boston, the Prudential Center was evacuated. In Chicago, the Sears Tower was evacuated because they feared a hijacked plane coming in. Uh, In Florida, Disney closed that day. And that you sort of have all of these things unfolding far from the original attacks at the Twin Towers, the Shanksville and Pentagon, Um, you know, including in, you know, in Los Angeles, they evacuated the skyscrapers Mm -hmm. in Toronto. They closed the subway, um, you know, sort of fearful uh, that the next attack would be the Toronto subway. Um, and that, uh, again, sort of it's these types of stories that are the way that we actually remember what happened on 9-11. You know, 9-11, the New York attack, um, I'm from New York originally, upstate Albany and, and on Long Island. And, you know, I remember as a kid, um, WPIX had a commercial 
of uh, how do we, because it's Channel 11, and uh, they're like, oh, how do we, you know, advertise us Channel 11, and it was kind of like a spoofy thing, and they would always show the Twin Towers as being, you know, the 11 uh, for WPIX, and so those towers were, you know, they were part of my childhood you know we went to them on on the field trips and and stuff like that and, and so the that the towers are more than just a symbol of of the new york skyline it really had you know like emotional attachment to everybody from from the new york metropolitan area and, and so i i can hear the emotion in in the stories that are being told and it's not just the people who responded obviously you know you tell the story of the two artists the one artist uh who did painting in the uh and the uh, video photographer artist. And why did you include those two stories in, in your um, book? Yeah, uh, it, it's a good question. Cause what I was, you know, so the book is a mix of original interviews that I did. Um, and then archived oral histories of, uh, uh, sort of done by institutions after 9-11. There were a number of places like the 9-11 Museum, the 9-11 Tribute Center, the Flight 93 National Memorial, the Capitol Hill historian, the Pentagon historian, um, who went out and did these great oral history projects. Um, and the, the foundational material for the book were about 2,000 of those oral histories that I gathered um, with uh, working with a researcher um, named Jenny Pachuki, who was actually from the 9-11 Museum. And, and those of those 2,000, and then I sort of probably collected uh, about 200 of my own stories and interviews, um, we ended up boiling all of that down you know, through many, many drafts and edits to the 480 voices in this book. And the goal was there, there are very few people in the book that you follow from start to finish, you know, from morning to night. And a lot of people sort of come and go as the day unfolds and as the experience, uh, you know, as the drama unfolds, and sort of people intersect with the national story of that day. And I I tried to, at the start of the book, tried to sort of localize it and, and, you know, establish the place and the narrative um, through, there are sort of three voices right at the beginning. Um, The first is the, one American who was off the planet Earth that day, Frank Culbertson, the um, the uh, NASA astronaut who was aboard the International Space Station that day. And then these two artists who were at the uh, working in residency at the World Trade Center, um, both of whom uh, did this, uh, who were doing art, that was very weather oriented. And so their defining memory of September 10th was this huge storm that passes through New York city that day um, and sort of sweeps across the East coast. And it is that storm that leads to 
the unique meteorological phenomenon that is probably the defining memory of 9-11, which is the blue sky of that day. The, um, the uh, it, uh, meteorologists call it severe clear. Um, and it was, you know, basically the air had been scrubbed clean by this storm. And so up and down the whole East Coast, it was just this brilliant blue sky. And that's really the thing that sort of starts 9-11 and that people most remember about that day. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about that severe clear and the guy up in space. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Welcome back from that quick break. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, please reach out to our sponsors because without them, we could not uh, do what we're doing. And uh, before we went on the break, you you kind of explained that we had one guy up in the International Space Station and uh, he's he's up there and it's a severe clear and so he has the most perfect view of of the the world realistically but the United States when this is going on his story is amazing and the part that I think is really telling is he says he's looking down there and he's seen all the contrails of the planes and then you know a few minutes later or an hour later whatever it is there's no more contrails except for the the one plane and we all know what plane that is tell me a little bit about his story and 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 like how why he is important because of the basically the images that he was able to capture yeah and and his becomes part of the um there's so much about that day that we um that we just don't know that we, um, you know, these incredible stories across the country, uh, these unique uh, memories or experiences of that day. Um, and it, I, as I was doing this research and putting this book together, um, you know, I sort of kept coming across these people who, you know, just had a totally different perspective than the one that so many of us did of, you know, watching the attacks unfold on television over the course of the day. Um, you know, Frank Culbertson, the one NASA astronaut off the, the planet earth that day. Um, I, I found Ben Bell, who was one of the sentinels guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier that day at Arlington and what it was like, you know, guarding the tomb, in in empty and evacuated Arlington Cemetery, uh, even as you could see the Pentagon burning, mm. you know, just at the edge of the trees of the cemetery down below, um, you know, these school children across the country um, who, uh, you know, just have these very vivid memories of the of the adults in their life. I mean, they're too young to understand what that, what was actually transpiring that day, but they understood that something traumatic had happened because of the reaction of the adults around them. 
And, uh, you know, to me, what uh, the totality of those experiences were um, is the way that 9-11 was such a national experience. I mean, it was history experienced at a national scale in a way that very few events in all of world history have ever been experienced. I mean, yeah, I think you can make an argument that 9-11 was the first and only global catastrophe that the world has ever seen. You know, that the, the world, uh, you know, on every continent, people sort of watched the attacks unfold together watching the same feed by the way that the president of the United States was watching that day. I mean, part of what is so strange about realizing how that day unfolded is that we sort of all had a similar experience. You know, and, and, and you're right. I mean, people could say, you know, maybe JFK, but that was still tape. It wasn't, wasn't live into your living room when you're eating breakfast you know it, it, it wasn't um it, it, it wasn't live uh it, and it also wasn't sort of continuing to unfold over the course of the day right right i mean part of what makes that day so powerful is that so much of america was watching when the second plane hit the, the south tower right. um you know and even more people were watching when the first tower collapsed and even more people were watching when the second tower collapsed. Right. You know, it's interesting and, and kind of rewind a little bit. Um, so Sonia Ross was a reporter um, with the Associated Press and, and, and she states that the day for her was just a, a routine junket thing that they're doing. The, 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 the B team was pretty much on the plane with the president when he was going to, uh, to read, you know, to the, to the school children and, and it wasn't even, that it was a slow news day, according to Tom Brokaw. Um, you know, it was going back to school was kind of it. it. They were looking at maybe the economy starting to slow down. Even at DC, it was just kind of like this. Okay, we're getting back into the, into the swing of things. It wasn't a big day for anybody. Um, and then this breaks. What was it like for the the reporters on on that plane during that time? I mean, did they realize what they were that they were actually covering this? huge significant event or were they still confused? I mean, what, what, what information were they getting? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, um, part, part of what, uh, becomes so wild about that day is realizing, you know, we remember nine 11 as part of our modern world. Um, you know, and I, you know, I think you can make an argument actually that, 9-11 is the start of our modern world. It's sort of as good a dividing line between the 20th century and the 21st century as we have. Um, but what what's incredible as you get back into it is realizing how primitive the tools were, the communication tools that people had. And so the, you know, the president... Uh, the traveling party, they get their first word of the attacks via two-way pager that morning. That they, um, they were using these cutting-edge two-way pagers 
that were so advanced that they you could actually use one of 14 pre-programmed responses to uh, to respond to an event, uh, you know, to respond to a page. Um, and then they are whisked aboard Air Force One after the second attack. And again, this is 2001. And so there is no email aboard the plane. There's no uh, satellite or cable TV. And the people aboard Air Force One that day are relying on rabbit ears antennas to basically pick up local TV news coverage as the plane flies around the country. And so as they got closer to urban areas, it would fade in. And as they flew away from urban areas, it would fade out. And so you're sort of left with this incredible realization that on 9-11, for most of 9-11, the president of the United States was less informed about what was going on down below than the average American sitting at home watching CNN. Right. I think you wrote in, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Raven Rock that the plane actually had to come, the, the Air Force One had to go lower than it really wanted to to pick up the signal. Is that correct? Yeah, that it sort of starts off flying uh, at the highest altitude that it can, um, about 45,000 feet, um, because uh, they're... Uh, Mark Tillman, the Air Force colonel, uh, who was the presidential pilot, he, uh, you know, they were afraid of other planes in the air. And so they took it up to an altitude uh, early in the morning uh, that was, you know, higher than any plane in the country would be flying. And they knew, so they knew if any plane started to approach their altitude, it was coming for them. And uh, then sort of over the course of the day, they end up, uh, you know, having to sort of fly lower to get the to get the TV coverage in. Um, and there's this, uh, you know, this sort of armada that grows up around them of fighter jets that they bring in to escort them. And ultimately a uh, AWACS, you know, airborne radar plane that was up on a training mission that get, gets tasked to follow them. Uh, and, you know, the, they're ordered by NORAD to start following the president's plane and the AWACS pilots radio, you know, Roger, where's the plane going? And, <laughs> you know, NORAD says, we have no idea. Just follow them. <laughs> oh, wow. So back to the Air Force and the military, so they're actually doing this nationwide drill, nuclear attack from Russia or something like that, right? And um, then these these real world injects start coming in, and one of the generals kind of yells at one of his subordinates to say, "Hey, you need to say this is a drill, right?" Talk about that a little bit. Um, so uh, one of the things that. Uh, you know, really comes through at the national level that day is how unprepared the country was for both this particular attack, but also an attack in the interior writ large. Um, and part of the confusion of that day 
is this was 2001. Um, you know, the military was still operating to a certain extent in a um, Cold War mentality. And so the president, uh, uh, the, the present threat that day was still supposed to be Russia. And Russia was doing a big military exercise that day, and the U.S. was doing a big military exercise that day, uh, known as Global Guardian, and it involved, um, you know, loading nuclear weapons aboard B-52s, it involved putting submarines out to sea, it involved, you know, bringing the ICBMs up to, uh, you know, full readiness state. And the president uh, is, uh, you know, down in Florida uh, that morning, and the military is sort of plugging away on their own exercise. And part of the confusion about the attack that ripples through air traffic control and the military over the course of that day was people thinking it was part of the exercise. Um, and you sort of see you know, these panicked air traffic controllers calling for fighter support and the military saying, wait, is this real world or is this part of the exercise? Right. And the commander of the first air force at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, he, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, captain breaks into the meeting and says a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And he assumes it's part of the exercise. And so he starts chastising the, ca the captain saying, when you have an exercise input, you need to say exercise input. Otherwise, it could be confused with the real world. And then they're like, no, 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 this is the real world. And they sort of all realize that the country is actually under attack. So they ask for, when you have on the book, on the audio book, you have actual um, clips from... Um, from from dispatch from the air traffic control. Air traffic control picks up the phone and calls Otis Air Force Base and says, hey, can you guys scramble? I love this. He goes, can you guys scramble F-16s or, or, or whatever? We have the situation going on. And uh, they, they had to explain. The guy goes, is this a drill? And he goes, no, this is, this is not a drill. And then when they scramble, the guys go and they, they jump in their planes and, the, and they go up Winchester. Uh, I wonder what they were thinking when they when they decided they're going to jump in those planes. What were they going to do when they got there? But um, the, the confusion though comes right across. And like I said, if you please get this book and and, and please listen to it on, on Audible because you, you'll the experience that you're going to have with it is, is is amazing. But did you get to talk to any of those pilots that were going off that day? And what was their mindset? Yeah, the, the mindset was incredible. So, the, you know, again, we were very unprepared for this threat. So on the morning of 9-11, there were eight armed air interceptor fighters in the entire country. Um, two at Otis Air Force Base, two at Langley Air Force Base, two, uh, I think it was somewhere in Texas that did sort of drug interdiction, and then two in the Pacific Northwest. And they, their primary goal was expecting to turn away Russian bombers. And so the Langley fighters, when they are first uh, scrambled into the air that day, um, no one tells them why they are being scrambled. And so 
they actually uh, fly straight out to sea at the start. Um, that they, uh, you know, they assume, they sort of default to the training that they're used to and assume that they are being scrambled to intercept a Russian bomber coming in. And the, you know, the military was so unprepared that it didn't even really have radar coverage inside the United States that day um, because the expectation, again, was that, you know, a threat would be coming from outside our borders. And so we would, you know, be dealing with a threat long before it got to the interior of the country. And uh, as it became clear that the threat was inside the country, um, you have these military uh, jets and units that are sort of scrambled into the air, totally unprepared. Um, And the sort of most famous set of them uh, are two uh, Air National Guard pilots at Andrews Air Force Base in D- uh, outside D.C. who are sent up uh, that morning, uh, Heather Penny and Mark Sassville, um, without weapons. You know, they are um, loaded. They, they, uh, they're sort of told to scramble their fighters um, before the fighters can even have a chance to be armed. And... So they realize as they are being sent into the air that they are being sent up on a kamikaze mission, Mm. that if they are successful, the one weapon that they are taking with them into the sky is their own fighter jet. And so they are shouting back and forth to one another on the tarmac, you aim for the cockpit and I'll aim for the tail. Um, And that they you know, take off that morning sort of genuinely believing that they are never going to return from this mission if they're successful. Um, and, and, you know, as part of this, you know, Vice President Cheney in the White House bunker under the North Lawn is being asked for shoot-down authority. Um, and he's being pressed um, he's being asked by the commander of the um, the, the White House bunker, um, a Navy officer named uh, Anthony Barnes, Commander Anthony Barnes, who was a naval aviator himself. And Commander Barnes had never spoken publicly before in, uh, in, until I interviewed him, and he sort of tells his story in the book. Um, and he talks about how he went and asked Cheney for shoot-down authority, and Cheney said yes. And then Commander Barnes went back and asked again, and Cheney said yes. And then Commander Barnes went back and asked a third time (laughs) because he was just so nervous because he understood how momentous this order actually was that he wanted to make sure that there was no ambiguity about what was transpiring. And what is sort of extra incredible about that whole story as uh you know that unfolds and cheney's giving shoot down authority and heather penny and mark sassville are being scrambled into the side into the sky is um what what none of them realize is that the whole day is over that what they sort of don't understand is because the day was filled with all of this chaos and confusion, 
is, you know, Dick Cheney is not having this conversation until about 10.15 that morning. Mm. And Heather Penny and Mark Sassville don't get into the sky until about 10.30 that morning. And the whole day is over. Mm. That United Flight 93 has crashed the fourth plane, the last plane, at 10.03 that morning. And that uh, sort of that... Uh, throughout the day, you see this sort of disconnect between the experience that people are having and the impact that they're having, just because events are moving so quickly and there's so much confusion that, you know, no one knew that that was the last plane. Right. I'm going to get a little personal with you. How did you feel when you were going through this process and listening to all those stories and and, and edited and put this book together. Yeah. So my like incredibly dumb comment is it was much more emotional writing a book about nine 11 than I expected it to be. Um, and you know, I, it, it, it was just really incredible reading these stories, listening to these stories. Um, and, you know, thinking about just what that day was like to really live. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this sort of very boring story of being at breakfast in college. And even that very boring day is very much burned into my memory. Uh, and it, it, you know, I remember, you know, so much of that day so vividly, even though I was so far removed from the day myself. Um, and so sort of reliving that day with all of these people um, was just really, really emotional. It definitely gives me the chills. And every once in a while, I get my eyes well up listening to the stories uh, of that day. And uh, it's, it's definitely this is I guess this is this is probably some of the best stuff you've done uh, putting this together, and I really appreciate you going through that process for us. Well, thank you. All right, Carol, I'm gonna let you go. Appreciate your day, and uh, you have a wonderful rest of the day. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me back. <laughs>